I have been um, training you for seven years to expect that we're going to have an Old Testament passage, then a New Testament passage, then a sermon. And I'm messing it all up today, okay? So we are going to get to the New Testament in a minute, um, but before we get there, uh, I, I want to begin by thinking about this idea of soul. And I want to think about soul because I think it's a, a, a word that we struggle to understand in the church, and it's a word and a concept we struggle to understand in our culture as a whole. Uh, and I'm certainly guilty of this. I think if you had come to me even a few years ago and said, hey, Jim, tell me what a soul is, I, I might have struggled to point to Bible passages and give you a really clear answer. Uh, but as I said, I'm in good company. I think this is a, a challenge for us as a culture as a whole. Uh, and an easy example for that, I don't know if anyone's ever read the books Chicken Soup for the Soul. Read or heard of them? Anybody? Okay. So th this is a, a famous set of books that were written uh, as like really encouraging stories, right? Feel good kind of stories. And the first one was pretty successful. So after a while, they came out with a lot, right? There's chicken soup for the teenage soul and chicken soup for the soul between 20 and 25, um, whatever, all the different per permutations of that. So this week for fun, I decided to look up what was going on with the chicken soup for the soul people. Uh, and maybe you already know this, but they have been so successful, there's now a company called Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment. And they have three main branches, three main divisions of their company. Uh, the first is books. They continue to make books. In fact, they make a lot of chicken soup for the soul books. They put out about 12 new books every year. Today, there are over 250 titles in the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. It's like chicken soup for the bottom line, right? Um, okay, that's fine. That's their MO. Their second component of their business model is movies or kind of direct-to-video, video-on-demand films and shows. Uh, and this was a little bit interesting, interesting to me. So on their website, uh, as they're describing the second component of their business, they say this, Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment is where the possibilities of a changing media landscape and the wonders of the human spirit converge. We operate video-on-demand networks delivering content for all types of screens. Our networks cover a wide range of themes like family, kids, faith, horror, and more. And if you're like me, one of those is not like the other, right? Um, Okay, so I can see a Chicken Soup for the Soul movie about faith or family or kids, but about horror, I'm not sure. Okay, that's their second component. Their third component of their business model, and I kid you not, their third component of their business model is they make pet food. Um, and I, because I wasn't sure if you'd believe me, I actually took a picture of the pet food. Can you put that up? So this is Chicken Soup for the Soul, grain-free, all life stages, all breeds, dog food. Uh, chicken, pea, and sweet potato recipe. Um, it's gotta have, I assume they all have chicken in them, otherwise that would just be crazy, right? Um, so I don't know how the dog food thing connects to the chicken soup for the soul thing, okay? It's beyond me. Um, but these are their three business models. And I thought as I read about this, what a great way to encapsulate our confusion about what the heck the soul is all about, right? Is it about heartwarming stories? Is it about making lots of money off of book sales? Is it about, you know, family and faith and children and horror? Is it about dog food? What is this thing that we call the soul? Uh, and then, as I started getting into the Scriptures 
that talk about the soul, um, I, I realized we don't ever get a clear definition in the Bible um, where we're told the soul is this. It's almost like we're supposed to already know. It's to be inferred what it means, which is a little bit challenging for us. So, um, when we come across a word or a concept in the Bible that is pretty confusing, that our culture is obviously also confused about, um, here's what we do. Uh, here's one thing that we can do. Um, we do a word study, right? We, we simply go to a concordance, and we look up that word, and we see everywhere it shows up in the Bible, okay? So, you can go to BibleGateway.com or BibleHub.com. They're free, and you just type in the word soul, and they'll tell you everywhere the word soul shows up in the Bible, and then you read a lot of those, right? Um, so I've done this for you because we don't have time to do that this morning. <clears throat> and uh, I want to tell you a few things I learned as I was kind of looking at the word soul in the Bible. Uh, the first thing you learn from a quick study uh, of, of a concordance is the word soul shows up more in the Old Testament than it does in the New Testament. That's really interesting, like a lot more, like, a, like four or five times as much. That's interesting because the Old Testament doesn't really have a robust understanding of the afterlife. There's a few scriptures that talk about life after death in the Old Testament, but in general, the Old Testament is a this world-centered story, right? So it's interesting that the soul is so important in the Old Testament, um, even in this world. Uh, the other thing you, you notice pretty quickly is that um, the word soul doesn't show up that much, especially in the New Testament. In fact, we've talked about heart and mind and body. All of those are mentioned many more times in the New Testament than the word soul is mentioned. That's kind of weird, right? Seems like souls are important in the Christian faith. Uh, now, the one thing you won't get immediately from doing that word study on a, on a website like BibleGateway.net um, is uh, the Hebrew and the Greek words for soul. Um, and this is actually important for us as we think about a little bit of a word study here because um, the, the words that we use for soul get translated to mean a lot of different things in both the Old and New Testament. So in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for soul is nephesh, and uh, nephesh is usually translated soul, but sometimes it's translated as other things. By the way, I'd like to have a whole sermon at some other point about how um, crazy this makes me, right? Um, it just drives me nuts. But anyway, we can't do that today. So um, the word nephesh usually is translated as soul. Sometimes it's translated as living being or self or person or life. Uh, the word suke in the New Testament in the Greek is the word that we translate as soul. Uh, and suke, again, usually gets translated as soul, but sometimes it gets translated as life or self or person or creation. Really interesting, right? Uh, that, that these same words have all these different meanings. It's almost like the people translating the Bible into English are also struggling with what it means. Um, okay, now I want to look at a few New Testament passages that talk about the soul, and we're going to go through just some individual verses. So will you put the first one up for me? I think this is 1 Thessalonians. Yeah, yeah there's our whole list. Okay, <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 5.23. I want you to listen to what you hear about the soul. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Do not, this is Matthew 10. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, this is Jesus speaking, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. James 1, therefore rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted Word that has the power to save your souls. James 5, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 1, 9, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And 1 Peter 1, 22, now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. Okay, so interesting, just to read those few Scriptures, we, we hear over and over again this language of salvation connected to souls. Did you see that again and again in those texts? All right, so what in the world does this idea mean? What is a soul? Uh, I think from the ways the Word is used in all those passages we mentioned and from this idea of salvation, we begin to get this idea that the soul is like our whole person. We've been talking for the last few weeks about our identity. We talked about our heart right, as the, the, the component of our identity where, where choices are made. Sometimes the Bible calls it our spirit. And then we talked about our mind as that component of our identity that is thoughts and feelings. We talked about our body as that part of our identity that is this beautiful bridge between God's physical and spiritual creations and um, the way we act out in the world. And we talked last week about community, that relationships are part about, of who we are. But you are more than just a choosing machine. You're more than just your thoughts and feelings. You're more than just your body or your actions, and you're more than just your relationships. You are all of it, right? You are that place where choice and thought and emotion and action and body and relationship all come together, right? And, and in, that, in that coming together of all those components of your identity, that becomes, that's like your soul, right? Um, Simpson says it like this. He says, the soul is that aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of yourself. Uh, we've been looking at this graphic for a few weeks, um, but uh, put that, yeah, thank you. Um, this graphic that comes from Dallas Willard, and he, he imagines, imagines this as our identity, right? That at our core, uh, at that center is our choices, and then our mind, and then our body, and then our social, and then around all of them is our soul, right? All of who you are, what pulls together every aspect of your identity, that's your soul. It's the core of you. By the way, God has a soul. We hear this again and again in Scripture, right? Uh, in fact, when, when God speaks in Isaiah about his son to come or the, his chosen one to come, he talks about how his soul delights in him, right? God's soul delights in his chosen. Um, this idea of our soul being the, um, the connection of all the parts of our identity into one coherent whole um, is, I think, the best way to articulate what the Bible's trying to say when we get this word nephesh or suke. By the way, I just love this graphic that Drew did for us. Um, so, 
You've got these, no, 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 go back, that was the right one, I'm sorry, yeah, that's Drew's graphic right there. Um, so you've, you've got these four people, it looks like, doesn't it, all holding hands, um, uh, the, the heart, the mind, the body, and the, the community. Uh, and then when they come together, can you tell that they look a little bit like the cross in the center, right? It's not perfectly aligned, but if it was perfectly aligned, it would be just like our cross. I love that image for our soul, right? All the parts of ourselves coming together, shaped around Jesus. Okay, so if that's our soul, um, if our soul is um, that part of our whole being that brings all of our identity together, and then what does it mean when the Bible says that our souls need to be saved? Because we heard that a lot in all those New Testament passages. What does it mean that our souls need to be saved? Uh, so I, I want to tell you a story. Um, there was a man who um, hit it big on Wall Street, made a ton of money, and you know, when you've got a lot of money, it's hard to keep it up. And so he, he built a lot of houses and he bought a lot of real estate and he just put it everywhere. Uh, and then he invested that money in a bunch of Apple stock. And he made, I mean, he had a lot of money before, but he made gobs of it, right? Just unreasonable amounts of money. And so he said, how am I going to handle all this? I already had a lot of wealth. What am I going to do with all of this money that now I've got? And so his solution was, well, I'm going to buy even more stuff, right? I'm going to buy bigger buildings and bigger houses and larger boats and everything I can possibly get my hands on so that I can contain and hold all this money that I've got. It's hard when you've got that much money even to hold on to it, right? So he puts a lot of work into it. And then he says, soul, I have good things stored up for many years, I can relax and enjoy my life. And then God comes to him and he says, ah, but on this very day, I'm going to demand your soul from you. And what is all that stuff going to be worth? See, I, I think what begins to happen with our souls is they get disordered. They get distracted. They get disturbed. Um, and, and the disordering of our souls comes when we allow these, these little things, these exteriors, these, these small details to become the thing around which our choices and our thoughts and our emotions and our bodies and our relationships are centered. So the story in uh, Luke chapter 12 of of the rich fool who builds bigger barns and then loses his soul, um, isn't a story just about him losing his soul when he dies. It's a story about him losing his soul as he lives. Because as he lives, he centers his whole being around things that are not worthy of his whole being. Uh, we, we began um, this sermon series talking about um, a divided heart and I had those pots up here, and we talked about what happens when I choose to be one person in one situation and one person in another. But often, our problem is that we have an undivided soul that's focused on the wrong things. Often, our problem is that we become convinced that we will find meaning and life in the pursuit of achievement or recognition or pleasure or fame or wealth or security. And we go after that wholeheartedly and whole-mindedly and whole-bodiedly and, and whole-relationally, um, and we lose our soul. Right? We, we lose that um, which is designed to give us life and purpose because those things don't have meaning. 
because those things don't have life. The ultimate thing that happens, unfortunately, I think in, in many of our um, lives and in our world today is that we go so far after those, those temporal limited realities um, that we begin to deny there even is a soul, right? We, we begin to get to the point where we say, hey, I'm not even sure there is any meaning at all or any life at all. It's just about, you know, getting what I need to get and moving on with my day. Uh, the word suke, um, I mentioned earlier, is the Greek word for soul. Um, gets translated into the English as psyche very often. Uh, and it strikes me as interesting that we have a whole field of study called psychology, right? Psychology is the study of the soul. But in our culture, uh, and I, by the way, I'm pro-psychology, okay? Don't get me wrong. But in our culture, psychology has become a, a material thing. It's not about spiritual realities. It's about physical realities. It's about, um, you know, this world and getting this life right, not about our relationship with God, not about what gives us... Isn't that interesting, right? Even the study of the soul in our world has missed the main idea of the soul. Uh, I think too often our quest for meaning and life has led us to believe that there's no such thing. So if the problem that we have is these dis disturbed, disordered souls, the solution is dependency. The solution is dependency that we were made to have dependent souls. And, and this is said so beautifully in um, Don Simpson's book, Revolution of Character. He says, our soul is like an inner stream of water, which gives strength, direction, and harmony to every other element of our life. When that stream is as it should be, we are constantly refreshed and exuberant in all we do because our soul itself is deeply rooted in the vastness of God and His kingdom. All else within us is enlivened and directed by that stream. This is the consistent message of Scripture, right? The message of Scripture is that, that life is in God. Jesus says the Father has life in Himself, and the Father has given the Son to have life in Himself. But if we want life, we need to find life in them. Job says um, God has in His hand the souls of every living being. That, that we are like, we're like phones that need to be charged by the power of God, right? Uh, and, and if we don't go back to God to recharge our souls, if we go and look for, for charge in all these other places, uh, we, we come up empty and we come up dry, and eventually we give up on the hope that we could ever have that, that life and that purpose and that meaning that once we thought was supposed to happen. So here's the good news. Uh, the good news is that God loves people with disordered souls. God loves people uh, with disturbed souls. God loves people who are overly focused on things that are not of um, eternal worth, and He loves people that have given up on that eternal worth, and He loves us so much that He sent Jesus uh, to draw us back to Him. Uh, and and I, I came across this great... Um, I guess it's a parable uh, of um, a, a pastor. This is a Presbyterian pastor named Benjamin Rosenver, and he was writing in 1845. And um, he, he tells this story as though it's Jesus speaking after His resurrection. 
Remember in the Gospel of John how Jesus is stabbed in the, in the side with a spear and it penetrates his heart and blood and water come out? Um, this, this pastor imagined Jesus speaking to the soldier that stabbed him in the side. And Jesus said, if you meet that poor wretch that thrusts the spear into my side, tell him there is another way, a better way of coming at my heart. If he will repent and look upon whom he has pierced and will mourn, I will cherish him in that very bosom he has wounded. He shall find the blood he shed and ample atonement for the sin of shedding it. And tell him from me, he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood than when he drew it forth. I just love that image, right? That, that Jesus is so in love with lost souls that it causes him more pain that we wouldn't come to him and receive the life that we need than it does even when we took his life from him. This, this idea that our souls need to find their rest in Christ, need to find their salvation in Christ, need to find a source of life in Him, is really a fundamental and pretty straightforward, simple idea of the Bible, but we struggle with it, right? We struggle with it because um, we start feeling like it's another thing we have to do. Uh, there's a, a book called Gentle and Lowly that I'm really enjoying right now, and in it, uh, the author has this uh, story of, of a a man who's thrown overboard or falls overboard in the midst of a huge storm off of a ship, and he's, he's drowning in the water, and somebody throws him a life preserver. And he looks back on the guy in the boat who throws him a life preserver, and he says, what's wrong with you? Can't you tell that I'm drowning? I don't have time to put on a life preserver. And he says, this is like us and God, right? Um, God says, hey, I know that your souls need me. Um, and we say, yeah, but God, I'm so busy. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to go to Bible study. I don't have time to go to youth group. I don't have time to go serve the poor. I can't afford to give money to missions. I can't, uh, I, I can't fit all that into my life, God. You don't know how busy I am. And God says, it's the life preserver, right? You're telling me you don't have time for the one thing that's going to give you life. So, uh, I love this idea that um, our job as the followers of God is simply to let Jesus give us life, right? Simply to come back and say, hey, the only way to fix a disordered soul is with a dependent soul. Uh, and there are times when that's really easy, and there's times when that's really hard. Psalm 42 describes it like this, as the longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? This incredible image that we are, are made to be filled with with the life of God, that, that He is the, the one thing that gives us life and um, hope and meaning and purpose, uh, like the charge to our phone, like the water to a parched throat. Um, and, and, I, and I love Psalm 42 because it doesn't suggest it's easy to bring God into your life. It doesn't suggest this is a simple thing, right? Say a prayer and snap your fingers and your life's going to be perfect. Do you notice how much the author is struggling with this? 
Uh, The author says, My soul is cast down within me. Why are you disquieted, my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my help and my God. He talks about um, the oppression of his enemies. He talks about his tears being his food day and night. He wants to drink from God, and he's drinking from his tears. And, And so what does he do? He goes back and he reminds himself of what God has already done. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. He reminds himself of what God has done for him, and he simply says, God, you're the source of my life. I want more of you. So if you today have a disquieted soul... If you are concerned that maybe um, you have looked for meaning and purpose in the wrong places, if you are concerned that um, you are divided and sometimes you come to God for meaning and purpose and sometimes you go elsewhere for those same things, if you notice um, that there are people around you um, who have given up on the idea that there might be meaning and purpose in this thing we call life, um, then the invitation of Scripture is really simple, is to come back again and again to Jesus and say, I need you like a, like a man dying of thirst needs water. How do I get more of you? You're the life preserver that brings me to life. And it's not easy. It takes work. It takes effort like any relationship in our lives. But it's the one that won't let you down. It's the one place where your whole self, your heart, and your mind, and your body, and your relationships can come together and be found in Christ and be made into something beautiful and eternal and good. Paul says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.